The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The Bible is very clear that both men and women are made in the image of God. Therefore, both men and women have the same value and dignity bestowed on them. Songs that we sang there about God's saving of a people, God's drawing of a people to himself, God's coming for us, that's true for men and women both. And yet, we saw something last week as we looked at three verses in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's something there, something here this morning and in passages that follow, and really throughout all the Bible, there's something there that is obvious and inescapable. The Bible recognizes real distinction between the two sexes, a distinction that is not mere social construct. It's not due to sin or bias, but in fact is a distinction that is there by God's design It's intentional, and it's good. God made male as a particular distinct sex, and God made female as a particular distinct sex. Neither one's better or worse, but they are different. And God made us and gave us different roles and responsibilities in relation to each other and in the family and the church, what we're going to be looking at this morning. The passage before us this morning is a prohibition with regard to some of those roles, with regards to women. And right away that makes some of us a little nervous. And maybe makes the rest of us a little nervous because of that. I've been, been a pastor for over 13 years, and I don't think I have ever had as many people in the week leading up to a passage say something to me expressing some sort of sympathetic concern for what I had to do this morning. (laughs) It's next. So I'm going to preach it. And I'm I'm not concerned about it. But some people, sympathetic concern, even one person going so far as to say that that I was responsible for the power outage that we had this week. (laughs) All I can say is that no one can prove I was present on Monday when the cords were cut. No one can prove that. <laughs> so we have a passage before us this morning that's a, that's a prohibition. And, and it's here because evidently it was a, of a need in the church in Ephesus. And it's a need for the church down through the ages. So Paul addresses it. And if we look ahead, we notice that if you flip the page, the very next section is about elders in the church, the, the role of elders. And so I think Paul is wanting to, before he gets to that, clarify that only qualified men can hold that office in the church. So he addresses that here now in his prohibition. And we just hear the word prohibition, and that's challenging for us, and it will be today. So as we look at it, before we turn to it, let me me say again, similar to last week, I'm assuming that I'm talking with the church here this morning that we're talking about this, we're looking at examining it together, trying to understand what that prohibition is. So I'm not going to try to like, coerce or back you into a corner with clever argument and, and definition of words to like, pull some sort of power play on you. We're the church. We're trying to understand what's here. We want to know what God has prohibited because then we want to follow it. Believing that whatever the good God says is good and right. And for life, for blessing. God says it, so it must be good and right and and life-giving to us. And for sure we have to acknowledge that people have messed this up and distorted it to all kinds of bad ends. For sure, absolutely. But we're not going to throw up the baby with the bathwater. We want to know what's prohibited by God. And so we come to this passage, like all passages, looking for what he says. Trusting in the goodness of God who is for us in Christ and ready to hear from him. Right? It's 
worth pausing on that for a second. Check yourself on that point. Because over the last 1,900 years, this passage has been understood very clearly and very easily. It's only in recent decades has it become controversial as the culture around it has shifted. That should make us suspicious. It, it should make us aware of something, that there are many, in the last several decades, there have been many, 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 I'm not going to be able to address all of them this morning, many, many, many arguments against these verses and the prohibition in it, raised up, written about, argued. None of them are sound arguments, not a one. But all of them are persuasive enough if you come to the passage already knowing what you're looking for. If you come with a conclusion already. So we, we need to check ourselves in that and just, just be careful, be alert to that. If we come with a conclusion already in mind, we've already determined a lot of things. I want to suggest the conclusion that we should come to the passage with already in mind is that God is good and that what God actually says, I actually want. So teach me. But I know we, we've experienced a lot. We've seen a lot. There's, there's a, a culture out there. There's, there's stuff that's happened in our lives and it's, it's difficult. So to help us kind of get, get right as we come to this passage, I'm going to flip around how I often preach. I'm still in the introduction. And I usually preach, I think this is how we should approach the Bible, we're usually looking for what has God said, what has God exhorted us towards required, and then having seen this is what God says, that's hard, that's challenging, then looking, and here's the help that God gives us. Particularly, gives us help, you're right. He gives us help by pointing us at the scriptures where we see what God has done for us in Christ. I usually end on that. I'm going to start with that in the introduction before we even get to it. Look back. Verse 5, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the gospel, that God, God, acted to save people by sending Christ, who then himself became extremely well acquainted with people in positions of authority who were in it for themselves. Not to bless other people with their power, but to bless themselves with their power. Not to do what is right and just and good and loving, but to line their own pockets and, and add to their own egos. He became extremely well acquainted with that. Entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and died so that we can come to situations where we, we wonder about or we know very clearly about abuses of power and can say, I have a God for me. I have a Savior who is for me who will protect me and carry me. I can rest in his hands even if I can't rest in the hands of those who are in authority over me. It's, it's how God enables us to face questionable or outright bad power. And he did that for us, for all of us, particularly this morning, I mean, he did that for women in the gospel by sending his son Christ to be a savior for us. He has shown he's trustworthy. And he's shown that he has you and he'll carry you through difficulties. And there are plenty of difficulties for sure. Come, I would plead with you, come with that perspective to the passage and say, okay, Lord, what do you say? I want to see it and I want to follow it, whatever it is. This question has to be answered first. What are you approaching the passage with? I'm assuming that that's our joint posture, that we're coming to it saying, 
I believe the gospel. I know God is for me in Christ. I know God has secured me now and secured my future. So I'm willing to listen to what you say, God. Teach me. So let me read the passage and let's begin. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's the passage, two observations from it. Here's the first. The prohibition. In the church, women are not to teach men or exercise authority over them. In the church, women are not to teach men or exercise authority over them. The prohibition is found in verse 12. It's the main point being emphasized in the passage, and it is a negative point because it's a prohibition. We're going to start in verse 11 with a command that's stated in the positive. It says, let a woman learn. And importantly, the command is not in the let part, as if he's speaking to men about what they should allow women to do. The command is in the learn part, as if he's speaking to women, saying, learn. That right away puts a different spin on this. It's not about two men, about how they can control. It's about to women, learn. And the original audience that would have struck them because they grew up in a world, particularly a Roman and a Jewish world, in which learning and women did not go together. Both those cultures discourage learning for women and encourage it, kind of confined it to men, especially religious learning. It's it's supposed to be reserved for men, not for women, but that is not the case in God's church. It is not the case for God's children. Women, you too, learn. Learn doctrine and learn theology and learn the character of God. The church needs and should have women who are steeped in the things of God, who understand the scriptures, who know them well, who who are intellectually, theologically deep. Men and women are different, and they're going to have different things that attract them for sure, but it, but it sort of grieves me if we look at a church or look at a ministry, and so we've tried not to be like this, but if we look at a church or ministry where we have things about men that are theological and deep and doctrinal and things about women that are only social, we should have both. Because women in the church must be theologically deep. That's the command. Learn. Learn quietly with all submissiveness. The word for quiet, or maybe your translation might say silent, that can sound hard, but it shouldn't. It's the same word used up above in verse 2 when we're looking for a peaceful and quiet life. It's also used in settings where audiences were listening to Paul in the book of Acts and they became quiet. They're like, piped down. It doesn't mean don't say a word. All Paul is doing is commanding one of the basic ingredients of all learning. Someone who's listening. Means quiet, willing to be taught. Doesn't think he or she already knows it all, but is willing to come under some teacher with an attitude of all submissiveness. The next phrase. Submission is just the, the placing of, of oneself under an authority and, and surrendering, surrendering, surrendering control to that authority. Ready and willing to obey it and follow it. A teacher, particularly in this case, that, that's the context, but because he says all submissiveness, he means across the board, a wide and a deep 
attitude that is in all subjects and expressed in all ways. He can't really be partially submissive. He means all things in, in all contexts, teaching especially, but women are to learn quietly and attentively with an overarching attitude of heart and mind that is submissive to proper church leaders. That's the positive. So it's the contrast with the prohibition of verse 12. I do not permit, says the Apostle Paul, I do not permit, and notice that's simply another way that Paul gives commands. Like in verse 8 where he said, I desire, or up in verse 1 as well as in chapter 1, I urge. None of those are expressions of, of Paul's preferences or Paul's theories or kind of how he feels at the moment, his habits. This is how Paul commands the church often in the way that it is to behave from chapter 3. I hover on that for a second because of the, the various recent arguments that are offered to try to reduce the prohibition here in this passage, one of them is the argument that this is just Paul's preferences or Paul's opinion or Paul's opinion in that place or at that time. We have to understand this is actually the Apostle Paul giving a command. When he says, I do not permit, he means God does not permit. And it's for the church, which means it's for the church in all times and in all places. For sure, submissiveness may look different in one context or another. Just like last week, modesty may look different in one context to another. For sure. But submissiveness looks like submissiveness. Modesty looks modest. It may, it may change a little bit culture to culture, but his commandment is an abiding one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Two things, two distinct prohibitions, both separate in the sentence structure and in the grammar, both are prohibitions for all women in relation to all men specifically. Not about other women or children. An important point. God expects and even commands and spiritually gifts some women to teach. Sometimes you'll hear the discussion, I've been in the discussion with with men and women both, who say, this woman is so gifted. She took to heart what you said about verse 11. She is knowledgeable and is deep and is thoughtful and is wise, and she teaches so well. God has gifted her. How can you not say? She, how can you prohibit? That makes no sense. And the response is that she isn't prohibited from teaching in the church. She's maybe equipped and gifted, She's prohibited from teaching men in the church. The other three quarters of the church are fair game. Women and children make up most of the church. This is not cutting out most of the church. We need to be clear about that. Because it's really not about who's intelligent and who can communicate. As we'll see here as we get into it, it's about God's design and his creation order and how he made men and women. It's not about intelligence or communication skills. So certainly, of, of course, women can teach. Women can teach certain people and can teach in certain settings. Most settings, in fact, but just some? No. The prohibition is against teaching men as well as exercising the authority over a man. Let's look at them in order. Teaching in the scriptures, especially in this letter, has a particular focus. It's about the public, authoritative, expressing, explaining, exhorting of sound doctrine and theology that's come to us from God. We might, to kind of put that in a phrase, we might call it corporate Bible teaching in the church. That's what it's about, corporate Bible teaching in the church. So the teaching has nothing at all to say about teaching math 
in a Christian school. Nothing here about that. Doesn't say anything about teaching self-defense at the community center or at the police academy. Doesn't say anything about teaching the Bible at a conference or in a seminary setting or in a book. Reason being that you can take or leave whatever you hear in a classroom lecture, whatever you read in a book, whatever you, you trade thoughts with a, a friend, if you're talking one-on-one over a cup of coffee, a personal conversation, there's no binding authority or sense of command in such settings. So what I mean. Take this very subject. We all, we all know that there are not just people in the culture, but people in the church who would, who would say something different about this, right? We all know that. I've read all that stuff. I've read books, heard lectures, had conversations with people. And you can take a book on this subject and you can say, I read that position. I, I see that you are saying there is no prohibition against women, that that was for another time, another place, that it's been misunderstood. And I can say, okay. And then I set the book down and I walk over and do my thing. I walk over and do my thing. Because there's no hold, there's no authority on me from that book or from the lecture, from the video series that I watch. Contrast that. Here's the church. I'm teaching this, and this is what we're doing and what we're going to be doing, and we're not changing. And so here's the bit of authority. We're not going to allow anybody to teach otherwise here. We won't allow it. We will refute it, and we will push it out. We will exercise some authority over this covenant community, different than any conference or classroom lecture or book. There's a difference there. This kind of teaching that is being discussed in this passage that Paul has in mind when he talks about teaching, that the way teaching is supposed to be in the church, has as part of its very nature a binding element to it, an authoritative element to it. Such teaching says, this is what we are saying, and this is what we will make be the case, and we will prohibit otherwise. There's authority in that, that kind of teaching. And so it inevitably and unavoidably runs afoul of the second prohibition. Standing in a position of authority and exercising it directly. Don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority, as in act out and exert proper leadership in a way that obligates those who are in submission. So this is not just about giving advice or giving counsel or sharing preferences or wisdom. Authority is indeed about power. It is. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Of course, for sure, for sure. We, we, get, we get kind of jittery when we talk about authority and power because we, we are very aware of abuse and we are very aware of, a, of power being used in, in corrupt and awful ways, for sure. But power, authority, the right use of power is necessary for good order and for prospering, Always. What Paul's talking about here then is good. What he is getting at is that God has made a community, family and especially now we're talking about church, in which there is a, a structure with authority and the right exercise of leadership that makes for good communities. And he has said, I've decided how that goes and then I made people differently to make that go. He decided that. We have a problem with that sometimes. It's difficult for us. There it is. Some have tried to get around that by saying, well, he's not really prohibiting the exercise of authority. He's 
he's, he's prohibiting the exercise of bad authority. Domineering. And the word, they point out, could mean that. But it clearly does not in this context. Again, this is one of those arguments that sounds good because you can take the word and you can say, the word could mean domination, domineering. But then you look at it again and you say, but obviously not in this context. His grammar structure puts two things in parallel and the structure of the grammar says they're both the same. Either they're both good or they're both bad. You can't have good teaching and bad domineering nature. And besides, what sense would it make to say, I prohibit women from dominating men. Men can dominate men. I prohibit women from doing it. What sense would it make to say, I prohibit women from teaching falsely. Men can teach falsely, just women can't. That's not what he's saying. Makes no sense. He's talking about good teaching and good authority and saying, this is reserved for qualified men. Women in contrast, learn and are in all submissiveness because the root issue beneath it all is the role of men and women in the church meant to reflect God's creation order. We're going to come to that in a minute. That's the second observation. Before we get there, it's fair to say a brief word about what we in our church do in applying this passage. So this is right out of our, our membership material. What we say is that the role of elder is reserved for qualified men. Not all men, qualified men. Furthermore, we say that groups of adult men and women in which the scriptures are being taught are to be taught by men. Men and women, we then say, can co-teach adults, providing that male headship is evident. And in a number of settings, that would be perfectly fine because if you think about what we do in our life training classes, a lot of that is not exactly the teaching of the Bible. It's the teaching of wise practice and advice. If you think about the class that I've been teaching recently and that Pastor Jed taught last quarter, there'd be whole, whole days of those classes where there wasn't much Bible verse mentioned. Just wisdom and counsel and advice. I taught church history I taught the philosophy of, of our ministry here. That not No Bible exactly there. there. There are lots of places where women could teach. We allow that in writing. We then, in writing, encourage women to look for opportunities to prepare themselves for and to exercise gifts of teaching for men and women, for, for women and children, I'm sorry. And then we say, Lastly, outside of those parameters, women are encouraged to pursue all leadership and ministry positions anywhere else in the church, including, as I'll say in a few weeks, including in the office of deacon. Of course, lots of what-if questions arise because you can go lots of places with that and ask many questions. Our perspective, though, is that if we can agree on, on this part this far, then we can talk about the what-ifs and make decisions about them that we come to together. But these, these are the lines that we're drawing and saying, that's where we are, that's what's not changing. The prohibition in this passage is about women teaching and exercising authority over men. But it's worth thinking about why. It's worth thinking a little bit about why that might be. Paul tells us. That's the second observation. So before I get to the second observation, let me just say, I have no real idea how this sits with everybody. But if it sits with you bad, what I would love to do is talk with you about that. As I said, my goal is not to say, um, I'm in the position of power here, and so I don't want any discussion about that. I did say we're not allowing changes, we're not entertaining differences, but in conversation, I'd love to talk about it. So please approach me. If it's something that didn't sit right with you, if something I said that was like, ah, let's talk, really, let's talk. 
But moving on with the passage, here's where Paul goes. Why? Women do not teach or exercise authority in the church because of God's creation order. Women do not teach or exercise authority in the church because of God's creation order. He's given a command, and now he gives us the reason for the command. And really, we could say the reason's in the plural because there are two things here, verse 13 and verse 14, though they work a little bit differently. Verse 14 is a little bit more like illustration, but it's the second reason, so we'll deal with them both. Paul believes, it's worth noting, that the events of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 actually happened. It's just worth noting that. He believes they actually happened and that we can learn from them. There's something there being taught to us in those chapters. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is an argument about headship as established by God. God could have made Adam and Eve at the same time. He could have made them in the same way, and he could have made them the same. Two oak trees look about alike, but he didn't make them that way. He deliberately made Adam first, made Adam from the ground, and then made Eve afterwards, and made Eve from Adam. And he made Adam, he made Eve for Adam, said that he made her a helper for him, and then Adam named her. All of that's in Genesis, and all that's extremely important. Were they both made in the image of God? Absolutely. Are they both of the same value and the same in countless other ways? Absolutely. For sure. But Adam was made first. And Eve was made for Adam. And Eve was made from Adam. That all also is absolutely true. It is. And it means something that we must not shy away from or, or feel embarrassed about because there's nothing wrong there. You can kind of feel this, can't you? Can't you feel like this? Step outside this and look at how odd this is, that we kind of feel a little bit of like, wow, is he really saying that out loud in public on the internet? We kind of feel that, but we shouldn't feel that way because it's just there in the Bible. It's true, and it should be okay. It's, it's hard for us because we are all extremely aware of all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. But when God finished making Adam and Eve, he said, it's very good. And Adam and Eve also would have said, amen, hallelujah, it is very good. Since then, we've messed it all up. True. But again, we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. It's very good. There's nothing wrong with it. We find it very troubling, in part because we've seen all kinds of abuse, and in part because we place value on people according to their role. That's wrong. We think the person in charge is more important than the person who's not in charge. We usually pay them more. Usually give them a bigger office. Usually give that person some window views. And the person down gets paid less and doesn't get a window and, and gets a smaller desk and, and gets ignored. That's wrong. Sometimes it's practically necessary. Sure, okay. But if the attitude is there that this is important and this isn't, that's wrong. We think that and we translate that into all of life. And so if... if I'm going to say, or if I'm going to point out, if I'm going to say that, that God said headship and subordination, that must mean that what, you really, what you're really saying is important and not. And I got, I got it clear that the woman is not. 
No, 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 no. Different, not lesser. We don't have to look much farther than the Trinity to understand that. The Trinity itself. The Bible makes clear that within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equally God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And yet the Son, in his actual carrying out of a role, is subordinate to the Father and does only what the Father tells him to do. Is the Son lesser? Less important? Less God? No, 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 no. Just has a subordinate role. Headship is not about value, but headship is. And he couldn't have made it any more clear than when he made Adam first, made Eve later, made Eve from Adam, made Eve for Adam, and then Adam named her. This is how God made us It's how we work best and bless each other and the world. And it's how we best image and reflect and display what God is like towards us as a husband towards a wife, as a leading, loving, sacrificing shepherd for us. See, something's going on here in leadership and those being led, in one who is the head and one who is submitted Something's going on there that we're, that we're showing ourselves and showing the world. Something about leadership, something about shepherding, something about sacrifice, something about service, something about dying. Because as soon as we say this, which is in the Bible, we also have to say the Bible also points out that this one, the one on top, shepherds, serves, dies for the one who is subordinate. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In our world, leadership is about lining my own pockets and building my own esteem. In the Bible, leadership is about shepherding and it's about dying. He called one of these two. In this case, he says, I'll call you man. He called one of these two to shepherd and to go first and to lay down on behalf of. And he says to Eve and to women, I did not make you to exercise authority. I did not call you to shepherd the men. I did not call you to lay down your life for the men. I call them to do that for you. And then I made them and formed them and prepared them to do it. They guide, they lead, they go first, they die. In our sin, we don't do that. And we'll stand accountable for that. But that's the model. Heads lead, heads lead and lay down their lives. Lead and guide, and they teach, because teaching the scriptures in public in the church is one very important way that the shepherds of the church shepherd. They lead and they guide the sheep towards the life-giving word of God, towards healthy doctrine, and rebuke and forbid the wolves, even confronting the wolves, from teaching what is false to protect the health and lives of the flock. The prohibition has its root in the creation order. Adam was formed first as head over Eve, who was formed later from him. If we see that, we get something important. That's from creation, not fall. That transcends everything that applies to us. And there's more, verse 14. Look what happened when Satan tried and then did successfully flip that order, the creation order. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's more strong teaching. Passage is full, right? More strong teaching. 
But this is the truth. Right there in Genesis 3, Eve herself is the one who said it. I was deceived, she says. True and hard to face. But we have to face it as long as we're careful and clear what this isn't saying. This is not saying that Eve's deception is to blame for the fallenness of the human race. Some people have done that with this passage. And with that verse. Eve's deception is why the human race has fallen. They just haven't read Romans 5. This fallenness is all Adam's fault. Romans 5 makes clear the human race fell into sin when Adam, the head, ate. As the head goes, so goes the body. So it's not Eve's fault. And Paul also isn't saying, as some people have used this, also is not saying that Eve and women can't be trusted to lead or teach because she's deceivable. As if men aren't. That's not true either. It's deeper than that. The key is in the word deceived, repeated twice, and in what Eve was deceived about, and Adam wasn't deceived about this, Eve was. She was deceived into thinking something was true, looked promising, felt right, but failed to deliver as promised, and instead left her a transgressor. What was the lie? What was laid before her? Not laid before Adam. Satan came and laid it, laid it before Eve. Not just eat this fruit and find glorious life. Not just that. And not just God's not actually for you. God's against you. You can't be trusted. Those things were there, sure. But that's not the, not the bottom of it. There's more than that. God had told Adam, who told her something about that fruit, and there was a clear structure of authority there, the making of Adam and Eve. But then along came someone else, follow this through in your mind here, who approached her and invited her not to learn in all submissiveness, but instead invited her to step outside of this headship and shepherding structure. Find her own truth and then teach it to Adam and lead both of them to life. Adam, she says, we will know everything ourselves. We will know good and evil ourselves. That's what I heard, not from God through you. I heard it from that one. Listen to me, learn from me, follow me, and we'll find God-like life. But Eve was deceived and became not like a god with life, but became a transgressor. Now, lest it seem like I'm indicting Eve or that Paul's indicting Eve, which is worse, to be deceived or to willingly, knowingly sin? Like Adam did. I think that's worse, in fact. Scripture makes clear, Adam was there with her as if he was watching the whole thing and said, okay, listened to her and followed her. And that's when we fell. So there's no, there's no blame shifted off of Adam here onto Eve. No, no, no. But the point is, what is the lie that Eve was offered and deceived into believing? That she could become the receiver of truth and the dispenser of it to Adam and would lead them into life. And Paul's saying, that was a deception, a lie. It led her to death. And you there in the church in Ephesus, it will lead you to death. And you there in the church in America, it will lead you to death. It is a deception. Do not be deceived. What Paul is getting at here is not a flawed, disqualifying weakness in Eve. He's getting at a deception that she and the Ephesians, and maybe us, that we all share. Women, don't be women in your God-designed role. That's just men trying to put you down. Don't do that. Instead, you should take up 
the responsibilities and take up the, the roles and the, and the places of leadership and teaching. You're just as qualified. You hear, just the, you hear the truth just as clearly. Go for it. Be free, don't listen. Teach, don't respond in submission. Lead, take charge. That's where you'll find life. And Paul's saying, she didn't. She was deceived. It led to death. She became a transgressor. He made us a certain way. Adam first and then Eve, that's the first reason. The second We've already seen what happens, he says, when a woman buys the lie that can be found by avoiding the way that he made us. But that's not irrevocable, permanent, which verse 15 affirms. The last verse here in this passage has the most confusing statement of all in the passage, for sure. And, and thankfully, I'm going to tell you what I think it means, but I have to say, I think, because it is confusing. But thankfully, whatever it does mean doesn't actually put in jeopardy anything we've seen so far and doesn't even put in jeopardy what it seems to put in jeopardy. You can read this and say, she will be saved through childbearing. Are you talking about, like, salvation by having kids? That sounds crazy. No, it doesn't. That's not what he says. Read the last part. He puts it all on faith lived out in love and holiness and self-control if they continue. So whatever the through childbearing means, it means nothing without faith lived out in love and holiness and self-control like he's been talking about all through the book already. So we can take a little sigh of relief there. But then it's worth asking, what does that mean though? Lots of suggestions made by people, the most intriguing being that perhaps the childbearing here is referring to the birth of Christ. Maybe. That is also hinted at in the context of Eve and Adam. Maybe. I don't think so. The context of Eve is important, as is the lie she believed in her becoming a transgressor. Here's what I think. She thought that salvation would come to her, that life would come to her by, in a sense, stepping out of her role and becoming the leader of this little family unit through becoming, if you will, the man. And he says, no, but don't fear, you will find salvation through remaining the woman, childbearing being shorthand, I think, for womanhood. Not that all women bear children, but all children are born by women. So it's a fair lineup to say, when I'm talking about childbearing, that's the thing that is even, isn't, isn't that not the case today even? That's kind of the tension point there. If I have kids, they tie me down to the house and take away my life. There's a deception in that. If I have kids, they tie me to the house and take away my life. And he says, actually, no, it won't. You will be saved through childbearing. Stay in that role. You will be saved, not by childbearing itself, by faith, lived out in love and holiness and self-control. But don't worry, the deception's false. You will not kiss life goodbye in your God-designed role as a woman. I think that's what he's saying here. Obviously, I want to stand carefully in that, stand lightly in that. It is, it is a confusing statement. But what's clear in the passage is the prohibition. And why? So what I ask you, church, is let's not get lost in the last verse and the confusion of it. Let's, let's not get over overpowered by the fears and overpowered by the arguments of the culture around us. But let's come to this and say, what your word says, Lord, must be life. 
because you are life. You've already shown yourself to be for me in Christ. So, okay. He made us male and female. And he made us different. So really, where we are at the end is back where we were at the beginning. Do you, do you trust him? He's trustworthy. He gives us life in this way. And I think that we should follow him. Not, not for the power of men, but for the glory of God. And for the good of all of us, male and female together. So let me pray towards that end. Let's pray. Father, a passage like this is challenging for us. Will you please make it sit right in our minds and hearts? We all have lots of things popping in our minds about reasons that we disagree or reasons that our friend or family disagrees with us. Things we've heard that are alternative arguments. Would you cause it to sit right with us? And then praying as, as one of the men in one of the proper leadership roles in the church, would you, particularly to me and to the other elders, would you give us grace to handle this well? Would you give all men minds of, of care, seeing that we are accountable for what we do with the way you've made us? Put over us, your people, your, your good hand and cause us to rest in you. And I want to end, Father, by saying, will you, more than just causing us to rest, will you cause us to rejoice? Because this, this is meant to be good. It's meant to be good. So help us to rejoice Give thanks for your marvelous creativity. To relish the differences between male and female. To, to, to rejoice in them, in fact. To value each other properly. And to respect where you've drawn the lines. This is for our good and for your glory. And so that's what I ask you to accomplish in our midst today and in this coming week. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.